Good morning. <clears throat> I travel a great deal for work, unfortunately, which means a lot of airports, a lot of hotels, a lot of rental cars, and it's where I pick up these colds. So um, I apologize in advance for any sniffles I have this morning. But as a result of all that travel, there's many times that I don't sleep well at night. You know, sometimes it's because of the uh, air conditioning isn't set right or the, the, the bed isn't soft enough or hard enough. Um, but often I find I don't sleep well at night because my brain just won't shut off. And maybe you've experienced something like that. It's all of the things that you have to do, all of the cares of this world, the responsibilities at home, the responsibilities at church and at work, and all, all these things that take up your time and, and, and require something from you, they just keep turning and turning and turning, and, and you just can't rest. But every once in a while, usually as a result of NyQuil, I'll fall into this really deep sleep while I'm traveling and you know, get a good eight or ten hours, and, and I wake up in the same position that I fell asleep in. And, and it feels so good, and, and this tells you you've traveled too much because I'll wake up, and for a few seconds, I'll forget where I am, what city I am, and what am I doing here. But it's actually a blissful 15 seconds. Because in those 15 seconds, I don't remember any of those cares. But then they all come crashing down on you when you realize what your day is going to bring and that nothing has really changed. They come crashing back on you and they feel like they could crush you. And I often wonder why so many things drag us down as Christians. Why do so many things um, uh, uh, drag us down? And why don't I feel like I have a Lamentations 3 morning. I, I don't always feel that way, that God's mercies are new, never come to an end. I, I don't wake up feeling like they're new every morning. I know I just crushed your image of me, but it's true. And instead, you know, we find ourselves wishing for, you know, some better health, uh, a deeper relationships, uh, more peace in the home. We find ourselves uh, wishing for all kinds of things. I'm in the second half of my life, as my son, the teenager, likes to remind me, usually with the phrase, Dad, you're now over 40 and you wear glasses. It always builds me up. But, but as I ponder the first half of my life, as I rub shoulders with other believers and with friends, as I've had the opportunity on occasion to sit across the desk in a counseling session and hear the burdens and the concerns that we all carry, I've been struck by one truth, that one of the reasons that we don't experience that lamentation three life is that we're a people prone to believe lies. Believe lies instead of the truth. And isn't that so since the beginning? What did our parents, Adam and Eve, do in the garden as they listened to the lies of Satan who said, did God really say? Is God really to be trusted? And so fell from their state of grace. We're people prone to believe lies. Well, Jesus had some harsh words for this enemy, the devil, when he said this about him, when he described him in this way, he was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. 
And looking at my own life and the lives of others, we, we, we know that this, this enemy uh, every day seeks to whisper in our ear, lies, lies, lies. We, we hear it in advertising schemes and in the, in the media. Our, our own sinful nature rises up within us every morning and says, lies, lies, lies. I want you to believe lies, lies. And see, the problem with these lies, when we dwell on them, they produce emotions. They, they produce actions within us. Emotions like anger, fear, anxiety, isolation, false assurance, false hope, broken relationships, financial hardship, and in short, an anemic Christian walk. You may wonder how an itinerant preacher picks his sermons in the morning. Do we just wake up one morning and say, oh, I'm just going to pick this text out at random? No, it doesn't always work that way. Usually it comes out of our own personal experience. And There was a time in particular I was sitting across the the desk in a counseling session trying to encourage a brother from Psalms 103, and the words struck me, I think, more deeply than they struck him. And I went home and I started to study the psalm, and and ever since, I can't escape it because it speaks to my own personal experience, and I hope this morning it speaks to yours. And as I meditated on what David writes, I believe it addresses the lies that we tell ourselves And David teaches us a new way to live. And in short, what we're going to see is that David resolves daily to replace the lies that he's prone to believe and to replace them with truth. And it's truth that Jesus Christ himself came to reveal when he says, if you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples. And you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Well, turn with me to Psalm 103. We're going to read the psalm in total. And then we'll look at it under three parts. A resolution worth making, replacing the lies that drag us down, and then a truth that transforms. So Psalms 103. David says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide. He will not keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it's gone. And his place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on his word. Heavenly Father, 
we are reminded this morning that we are a people dependent on you. Thank you for the worship time, Lord, when we can rehearse who you are and what you've done in our lives. We thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit that indwells every believer. And I pray that that spirit this morning would work powerfully within us to hear your word and to respond to it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, a resolution worth making, verses 1 through 5. Now, I agree with Charles Spurgeon in his commentary on this chapter when he says that David was an older man when he wrote this hymn. When you, as you read through it, 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 David is a man who has lived through life's ups and downs, his joys and his sorrows. This is a more mature David. He's lived life's experiences. We don't know what he was experiencing when he wrote this particular psalm, but we do know that it was a, a regular habit in David's life to renew his mind with truth, to dwell on who God is and what he's done. And we see that just from the many psalms that he's left behind. And David begins this, per, this uh, psalm in verse 1 with a personal call to worship. You notice he addresses his own soul in verses 1 and 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul. He's calling to himself. Verse 2, bless the Lord, O my soul. He essentially says, wake up, soul. Wake up, self. Praise the Lord. Bless his name. Get out of your slumber. Get out of the darkness you find yourself. Get out of the muck of life and look up. And then the next few verses, he, he hits himself with a morning cup of spiritual espresso. You know, he nails his soul with a whole salvo of truths. He says, don't forget God. He blesses. He heals. He redeems. He satisfies. He renews. Over and over again. He forgives my iniquity. He heals my diseases. He redeems me from the pit. You notice it's present tense. David has experienced this in his own life. He said, this is what you do for me, God. Isn't this what Paul tells us to do? When he reminds us in Romans, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And it's this daily washing of our minds with truth that David's practicing, that scriptures bid us to participate in, that urges and bids the emotions to follow. We don't always feel the Lamentations 3 life. But what David engages in, what we've engaged in this morning in worship, it, it, it begins with an act of the will. We choose to engage in truth. We choose to root out lies and replace with truth. And what happens is our will bids the emotions to follow. Now, in the next section, David gets down to business, and he's going to replace lies with truth. And as we go through these sections, much more briefly than I'd like to, each one of these would be, uh, you know, like a, a discovery class in and of themselves. But I want you to think about when you feel things like anger, confusion, anxiety, Ask yourself this question. In the midst of that struggle, what am I believing about who God is? What am I believing about who I am? And what am I believing about the circumstances? Because what I believe about those three things will dictate how I respond. Now, the trouble with, with having been engaged in this psalm for so long, I, I had the opportunity to teach through this psalm with a group of lay counselors at a local counseling center and encourage them with it. I've had the opportunity to preach on this before. 
And so it's been a part of our lives for quite some time. And the problem with that is what has become a regular practice in our household virtually every week is when I respond to a set of circumstances, my wife will often lovingly look at me and say, and so what lie are you believing today? It just kind of cuts me off in what I've been doing and causes me to think. Well, David attacks three broad categories of lies in this next section. Lies about our Christian status, lies about our Christian service, and lies about our Christian sovereign. And as we go through these, consider if you've ever believed any of these lies and introduced yourself the way Matthew West introduces himself in in his song. Have you ever introduced yourself this way? Hello, my name is Regret. I'm pretty sure we've met. Every single day of your life, I'm the whisper inside that won't let you forget. Hello, my name is Defeat. I know you recognize me. Just when you think you can win, I'll drag you right back down again. You've lost all belief. These are the voices and these are the lies that we tell ourselves. Well, first, lies about our Christian status. These are lies that affect who we think we are in Christ. How, how, How do we as believers really stand in front of God? And lie number one is verses six and seven. The lie that says, God's forgotten about me. I'm a nobody. Oh, oh, yes, I'm saved. Yes, he's redeemed me. I'm a part of the covenant community, but I'm really not an important part. I'm not like all those other brothers and sisters who, who have it all together. Why would he care? I, I can't bother God with my problems. No, no, these are lies, David says. And look at verse 6 and 7. He says, no. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Are you downtrodden? Are you feeling oppressed? Well, good, because those are exactly the kind of people that God works for on behalf of. And notice the example that he goes back to. He goes back to Moses in Israel. He says in verse 7, he made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. Who was Moses when God entered his life? Moses was a, a murderer. He had fallen from royalty in Egypt. He was a vigilante from justice. He was running around the desert taking care of a bunch of sheep. You can't get much lower than that. And it's, that's the Moses that God chose to reveal himself to at the burning bush and call him to lead his people. Who was Israel when God entered their lives? They were nobodies. They were slaves. They were the bottom of the bottom. They didn't even remember who God was. And it's just the kind of people that God chose to reveal himself powerfully to. It's those kind of people where God said, no, you will be my people. I will draw you out. I will enter into covenant with you. You will be my people. I will be your God. I will dwell among you. So don't believe these lies because David says that's not the kind of God that we serve. Number two from verses eight and nine. The lie that we believe is that God's still angry with me. I'm just a failure. I, I, he, he has to lose patience with me because I keep falling again and again in the same sin. I go back to him over and over for repentance, with repentance and forgiveness, but, but I just keep falling. 
I'm just a failure before him. No, David said, that's a lie. And he goes to verses 8 and 9. He says, no, the Lord is merciful. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. God is not a cosmic cat who sits up there waiting to pounce on us like a mouse. He's not waiting for us to fall just so he can zap us with a bolt of lightning. David admits, yes, we will be disciplined by the Lord, he says, but he won't always chide. He won't keep his anger forever. David says, yes, we will fall and God will discipline us, but it's always with purpose. And it's always just for a time. The purpose is to renew us, to bring us back into fellowship with him, to grow our faith, to build us into what he wants us to be. No, God is not still angry with you if you're a redeemed child of the king. Number three, from verses 10 through 12, the lie that says, God can't forgive me. I'll never be rid of my guilt. It's tied closely with the first one, but there are those, there are those sins that nag at us, maybe committed before we were saved, maybe committed after we were saved, and, and we can't believe we did it. But they keep dragging us down. They keep dragging us down. The enemy whispers into your ear, you can't be rid of that guilt. You deserve it. God can't forgive you through it. But no, no, David declares, no one is beyond hope. Verses 10 through 12. He does not deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. God says says through David, yes, you may have experienced these sins. You may have committed them. You may have rebelled against me. But what's, what's so awesome about me as God is I don't deal with you the way you deserve. I don't treat you the way your sins deserve. No, I've chosen to dealt with my son, Jesus Christ. I've chosen to punish him. He's chosen to go to the cross. He's chosen to die for you. He's chosen to redeem you. So yes, those sins are there, but you don't have to be concerned about them because when you come to me for repentance, in repentance, and you come to me for forgiveness, I've taken care of it. I don't treat you the way you deserve. And he goes on, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. David says, don't worry about that sin, because I've covered it under my son's blood, God says. And I've removed it so far from you. You can't get any further from the east is from the west. And the illustration there is, you can't look at the east, And look at the West at the same time. And so what God's saying is, your your, your sins are all down in the West. The righteousness that you have through Jesus Christ is in the East. And when I view you, my back is to your sin. Because Jesus has covered it with his blood. He's taking care of it. And so there's no lie that we should believe that says he can't forgive us. There's no lie that we should believe that tells us that we can't be rid of our guilt. He says this in John 10, Jesus himself, the good shepherd. He said, I've laid down my life for you, my little lamb. I've given you eternal life so that you'll never perish. 
No one can take you out of my loving hands. No one can take you out of my Father's loving hands. And as Paul declared, where sin abounds, grace abounds more. Replace those lies. Replace them with truth. The fourth lie in this category, verses 13 through 17. God can't value me. I'm weak. I'm frail. These are the kind of lies Excuse me. These are the kind of lies we tell ourselves when we struggle in our Christian walk. I, I, I'm not mature in this area yet. We often compare ourselves to other Christians. And we say, I haven't arrived like they have. I still struggle with these things. I I still feel so weak in my battle against this sin. I I struggle to to do the right thing at work when I know I should. I I struggle because I'm still embarrassed about sharing my faith. I'm weak, God, in all these areas. And when I'm so weak, how can you value someone like me? And David says, no, that's a lie. Verses 14 to 15. When we're weak, we're not telling God something he doesn't already know. He, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we're dust. He created us. For as man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it's gone. And his place knows it no more. God understands our weakness. As a parent, some of my favorite memories of Andrew were in the, the infant and toddler phase. Um, a lot of work then, a lot of sleepless nights. Not saying it was easy, but some of my favorite memories, uh, being able to rock him at night. And uh, as dad, I, I had the privilege of putting him to bed every single night, rocking him. I didn't travel like I do now, and I would rock to him, I'd sing to him. That's why he gets his musical ability now from dad. At age two, he knew all four verses of Amazing Grace and could sing them all. And we had this tape somewhere. We recorded him, and you believe we can't find it anywhere? But rocking him, feeding him, uh, 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 clothing him, bathing him, all these joys, he was so dependent on us. And as a parent, do you ever look at that little infant or that little toddler in disgust? and say, what what good are you? You can't even help yourself. That would be absurd as a parent to look at a child. No, we say, for a time you need us. For a time you're weak. You'll mature. There will be times when you will take care of yourself. And then as parents, we wish we could take care of them again. But that's exactly how our Heavenly Father looks at us. Look at verse... 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion on those who fear him. He knows our maturity level. He knows that when he first saves us, we have a ways to go. He knows we won't be arrive yet till we reach glory and we're stripped to the sinful nature. And even then, we're going to have all eternity to continue to mature. No, God doesn't look at us like we're weak and undervalued. He looks at us as a father, as a parent, who says, I take great joy 
in bathing you. I take great joy in clothing you. I take great joy in watching you take your first spiritual step towards maturity. That's the truth David calls us to believe. Well, those are lies about who we are in Christ. There's also lies about our Christian service, verses 17 and 18. And the lies in this category are almost opposite of the lies of the previous category. These are lies that that we believe that blind us to our own sinful patterns of behavior. You know these lies. Lies like, I want, I need. How about I deserve? How about, well, it's only a little thing. No one will know. No no one gets hurt when I do this. Or how about the biggest, fattest, juiciest lie from the pit of hell? Doesn't God want me to be happy? You know how many families have been destroyed? When dad decides God wants him to be happy and runs off with the secretary. You know how many parents, how many children are scarred when mom and dad decide that their happiness is more important than God's holiness? See, God's goal for me is holiness. It's not happiness. And there's a big difference. And in the midst of holiness... God can teach us joy, which is far better than just happiness. And when we experience the consequences of our sins, we find ourselves asking us these questions. Why is this happening? Why why is God doing this to me? I, I shouldn't be struggling with this, should I? And it's because we bought into lies that we can't see the patterns of our own sin, and so we can't see that certain things are consequences of our own sin. Notice what David does. That He reminds us that it's in obedience that we experience the benefits of God's truth. The joys of the Christian life are experienced by those who, look at verse 13. So the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Verse 11, so God is in his steadfast love towards those who fear him. And then he goes on in verse 17 and 18. From everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. Verse 18. His righteousness is to his children's children, to those who keep his covenant, to those who obey his commandments. The Christian life isn't a free ride. Now, now I want to be very careful here because this is what I'm not saying. What I'm not saying is that whenever we experience difficulties in life, it's a direct result of our sin. That's not the case. Because we live in a sin-cursed world. There there are difficulties that God brings our way to strengthen us, to to increase our faith. There are times when other people sin against us, and, and we're hurt by that. But brothers and sisters, there are so many times that when we experience difficulties, when we experience hardships, when when we feel the anger, the, the anxiety, and the fear, it's right for us to search our own hearts and ask ourselves. Are there patterns of sinful behavior here that I'm not seeing? Have I bought into some of these lies? And maybe this is the time when we need that brother and sister in Christ to come alongside us. And maybe we need to be vulnerable with them and say, can you examine my life? 
Can I share with you what's going on? Can you be honest with me? Can you point out to me where I might be going astray and I don't even see it? Our spouses are wonderful for this because they know exactly what's going on. The only problem is we don't always listen to them. So maybe we do need that brother. Maybe we do need that sister. Maybe we do need that Christian counselor, that biblical counselor that can walk alongside us for a time and root out some of these lies that we believe. Well, lastly, lies about our Christian sovereign. These are lies that we believe about who God is. Remember back in the garden? God's just a cosmic killjoy. He doesn't want you to be happy. He's taking the best fruit and keeping it from you. He knows there's all kinds of good stuff there, and he doesn't want you to have it. It turns a huge positive into a huge negative. That's what Satan did. That's what lies did to Adam and Eve when they believed him. And so David concludes this hymn, this this psalm, and as I, as I read through the flow of this verse, this, this psalm, look at verse 19. It's almost kind of odd. What's it doing there? He says, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. It's almost a little out of place in the flow of things. But what David is concluding, what he's teaching himself about the truth of who God is, he's teaching himself that truth is only as reliable as its source. And he's reminding us who the source and author of truth is. What does he say about God? He's established his throne in the heaven. His kingdom rules over all. The source of our truth is the one who rules all things well. If you take some time, I wish we had the time to do this, but I encourage you to jot these verses down. Take some time to read through And catch a glimpse of the author of truth. These are amazing passages that express God in all his regal majesty. Isaiah, I saw the Lord seated on the throne. The train of his temple, of the robe, filled his temple. And the cherubim and the seraphim were crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the vision was too much for Isaiah, and he fell down before God. He said, whoa, I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm not worthy to be in your presence. Or Daniel, when the Ancient of Days takes his throne and the chorus of the universe is surrounding him and the multitudes of angels are crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Or Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5, the throne room vision of God seated in majestic splendor, ruling all things unchallenged. There are no accidents that come our way. There are no lies that can be taught that thwart God's plan for us. All of God's promises, all of God's truths are as certain as he is. And when we see this vision of who God is, we're reminded that he's he's transcendent above us and he sits above all the muck and mire of life. And he rules everything in perfect peace and in perfect harmony. And none of his plans for us are disrupted. 
It's this God in all his sovereign majesty that began a good work in us and will complete it. And so when we go to that truth, why is that truth certain? It's certain because of who God is. That's what we rehearsed in our worship time this morning. That's what Deb reminded us of in worship, is that we rehearse who God is and we rehearse what he's done. Well, that's what David did. The question is, how do we do that? How do we do what David did? How, how do we root out the lies? How, how do we replace them with truth? The lies that drag us down. Well, God has given us the means of grace. God, God has given us access to truth. It depends on how we use it. He's given us prayer. The privilege of entering the throne room of the God of heaven communicating directly with the author of truth, how much do we partake of it? He's given us the scriptures. We can sit under the preaching of his word, the the means by which God is established to declare his truth. We can read for ourselves. We, We have access to so much study. We have worship time through music. Again, this morning, we rehearse what he's done. We rehearse corporately who he is. But when we, and when we look at this, we can see with Peter that he's given us everything we need for life and godliness. But it's so hard to translate this into life. Because you can look at these things and you can say, well, isn't this like the little engine that could? Don't we just sit there and go, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. When we experience anxiety, do we, do we just look up every verse we can find in the Bible and we just sit there and go, I know this is true, I know this is true, I know this is true, I know this is true. No, that's not how it works. We just don't grab proof texts for everything that we experience. But what we do do with truth, what we do do with Scripture, what we do do with prayer, what we do do with worship is we do what David did. David rooted all of that truth in experience. He looks back at the experience of God's people through the millennia to see that God has a 100% perfect track record with his people. A 100% perfect track record of declaring truth, of fulfilling promises. How many times in Old Testament Israel did God have them build a memorial? Remember what I've done for you. Remember what I've done for you. How many times did Did he give them a new feast, like the Passover? Remember what I've done for you. Remember what I've done for you. How how many times uh, are we reminded to to, uh, enjoy communion together, the ordinance that Jesus Christ gave them? You know, in the church that I grew up in, it had an ornate wooden table for communion. And engraved on the front said, in remembrance of me. And I remember sitting there and seeing that table every single Sunday and often being struck with, do I really need to be reminded to remember the cross? Do I really need to be reminded of that? How sad. The greatest event in human history, and I need to be reminded. But that's what God says. Remember, he knows we're frail. Remember, remember, remember. And this truth is not words on paper. This truth is experienced by God's people. 
And so we can go back and we can see what God has done and know that what he promises is true for us. That's true in your life. If you've been saved for 15 minutes, God has an amazing track record with you. Because you can sit in front of another brother and sister and say, this is what God's done for me. I was dead in my transgressions and sins. God called me from before the foundation of the world. He chose me to be his very own. In an effectual call, he called me from death to life. He opened my eyes so that I could see. I am now a new creation in Christ Jesus. I am now no longer under condemnation. That is a God who has entered time and space, who's entered our lives physically and truly. We can see it, we can touch it, we can feel it. And every one of God's people has the same experience. These are not words on paper. These are not pretty songs. This is a truth rooted in the God of history who's acted in history. And because he has a 100% track record, we know that we can trust him into what we can't see that's ahead of us. John 10.10, the same good shepherd reminds us, I've come to give you life, and I've come to give it to you abundantly. Don't believe the lies. Don't believe the lies. Well, how does David uh, finish this psalm? This is a truth that transforms, verses 20 through 22. Notice what happens to David when he roots out lies, when he replaces it with truth, when he rehearses who God is, when he rehearses to himself what God has done. Look at these last verses. David can't contain himself. It just spills over. It spills over in his life. It spills over into the lives of other people. He can't contain it. He began by saying, bless the Lord, O my soul, just me, just little me, one David, one harp player, one singer. And now he can't contain it. Now it's bless the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts. You, you majestic, angelic creatures who were created to live in the presence of God in his throne room and give him glory and give him honor and give him majesty. And worship him day and night. Praise him, you his angels. And then that's not enough. Praise him all his works, all of creation, all the places in his dominion. Bless the Lord. Oh, my soul. You see, he can't contain it. And when we practice this renewing of our minds with truth, it's going to spill over into other people. That's why we need the fellowship of the body of Christ. How many times when we get together with a brother and sister do we actually practice this? Do we actually practice rehearsing for each other? Man, can I tell you what God's been doing? It's not with the purpose of bragging. We know it's all about him. But do we encourage each other? Look, this is what God did in my life this week. This is what he did in the life of my child. This is the way I see him working at work. We've been praying for this for five years, and look what God did. Do we encourage each other that way? And maybe it'll help when we become so full of his truth that it just has to spill out, just like for David. And maybe when the truth transforms us, maybe we'll be able to finish Matthew West's song.
And maybe we can say to another brother, or maybe we can say to somebody who's struggling and doesn't know who Jesus Christ is, and is struggling in the, the sea of lies that the world tells them. You know, what's so special about the Bible? What's so special about Jesus? Why is all this true? Why can't I just go to Buddha? Why can't I go to Allah? Why, why can't I go to science? You don't have to prove anything. You just say, look at my life. My life is a train wreck. But I'm not defined by that anymore. The one who makes all things new has proven it's true. Just take a look at my life. You want a life, sit down with me for, with a cup of coffee. I'll show you a train wreck. But I'll show you a train wreck that's renewed by God's grace. And so that it's not me, it's him. And that's the God who can do it for you. I think we should wear these name tags in church. This would be awesome. I saw this on a t-shirt. I'm thinking about buying it for myself. To remind me, not to remind other people. Hello, my name is child of the one true king. I've been saved. I've been changed. I've been set free. Amazing grace is all I can sing. I'm a child of the one true king. Well, I pray that this may be helpful to you in some way. I would encourage you to take this psalm and just chew through it. Think about those things in your life. What's tearing you down? And what are you believing about God? What are you believing about yourself? There's probably some lies in there. that Satan wants you to believe, but God has no time for. He wants to replace him with something a whole lot better. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the time we can spend with your people. Your word is truth. Sanctify us in truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.